Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Manpreet Carr on the show. Manpreet is the city councilwoman for Ward 7 in Bakersfield. Growing up in Bakersfield, Manpreet is intimately familiar with the beauty and challenges of her hometown. After graduating with two master's degrees from UW-Madison, she decided to return home and run for local office. We cover quite a few topics in the conversation, including her ethnic heritage, urban planning and transportation issues in Bakersfield, economic development, as well as many others. Please enjoy this fascinating and wonderful conversation with Manpreet Carr, and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best. Fresno's best. Where do you like to eat in Bakersfield? So in Bakersfield, I have a few favorite spots. It depends on what part of town I'm in. If I'm downtown, my favorites right now are The Botanist and Mango House, which are both locally owned. And we're celebrating small businesses this month, but they really have just unique flavor palettes, really thoughtful dishes, and even a unique dining experience with like the aesthetic. But if I am craving a taco, then I'm going to Pali Ciense Torres. It's on Union Avenue. And I think those are the best tacos in Bakersfield. Why do you say that? What makes them the best? They, it's very specific. They marinate all of their meats in like a pineapple like they, they marinate it's what they marinate the meat in and mm-hmm. i think most of it is marinated in like some kind of pineapple base so the flavors are crazy and again like the family is very sweet we actually did a block party during my campaign and they were serving tacos to everyone just very good people as well mm. what 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 kind of food is mango house so mango house is kind of like a modern Mexican, Latin American food. And the the owners and those kind of behind the concept of Mango House also created another re- a restaurant called Vida Vegan here locally. And so Mango House is a concept by Mao actually is our friend or my friend who, who, who started this. And even when you walk in, kind of the colors and the vibrancy of the restaurant, it really it is really a unique feel. But chile, their chilaquiles are probably the best chilaquiles I've ever had. Are they healthy chilaquiles? They are. They're healthy. So what makes a healthy chilaquiles? I don't know, but they really figured it out. So <laughs> okay. that is where I will leave a cliffhanger. But everything on their menu is is healthy. It's unique. It's different. But they have also qualified for being a blue zone kind of certified restaurant. So they qualify for kind of like this concept of healthy eating, which is very neat as well. Okay. And last one on the food is what's your cocktail of choice at the botanist? <laughs> it's a soft serve ice cream. <laughs> oh, say more. Yeah. So I always say this to everyone, but the reason that I keep going back to the botanist is because they have probably the most perfect soft serve I've ever had. It is fluffy and they put like, they change the flavors, but vanilla is probably my favorite. And they put like this cookie butter on top and, and some different toppings, but it comes in like a little, little glass as well. And it's just a delight. 
That sounds wonderful. And I absolutely need to try it. Uh, we're going to make a real hard pivot now and talk about Sikh and Punjabi topics because for a lot of reasons, both true in Bakersfield and true in Fresno. So we have large populations of those demographics in both our up, up and down the valley, to be honest. But I think maybe a fruitful place to start would be to define some terms, because I feel like people use Sikh and Punjabi interchangeably, those meaning those not from the community. And I think that the first thing that you need to do in order to understand people is understand the words that we're using first, because obviously these are very different things. Punjabi is more refers to a region and Sikh refers to a religion. Is that the accurate way to describe the difference between those terms? Yeah. So Punjabi is also our language and culture. So, you know, of course we originate from the state of Punjab, but there is a Punjab on both sides of the Indian and Pakistan border. So you're you're right in saying that Sikh is our faith tradition. Um, and so you can be Sikh Punjabi, you can be Sikh Californian, you can be Sikh, you know, uh, Fijian or from anywhere in the world. But it, it kind of points to ancestrally belonging to Punjab. And so I think that's why folks do, no matter where they went, which diaspora they settled in, will still refer to themselves and identify as Punjabi. And that's kind of like a heritage ancestral choice to say that I identify as Punjabi rather than Indian. So it's something, it's like a very specific experience. And so you can be both Sikh and Punjabi, but the Sikh faith tradition did originate in what is modern day Punjab in India. Okay. And what are some things that people should know about Sikh traditions that maybe might help them understand the community better? So, you know, common is that our men and women adorn turbans and that is symbolic and is kind of the most obvious physical representation of being sick. And the reason why is that it was understood that only folks of nobility wore turbans or kings wore turbans. And so the idea of everyone kind of wearing turbans was to once again, create kind of this base of equality, but also in, it, it's also specific to the region. You know, you see other faith traditions within kind of this larger South Asian kind of like Middle East region wearing turbans. It's because of the climate. It, it's just kind of the, the cultural garb that folks wear. So first, I would say it's the physical appearance of a Sikh. And also a, comes with that kind of some of the things that we wear. You'll see folks who are Sikh wearing an iron bracelet, which my, my own interpretation is that it is an earth element. And there is constantly kind of verses that reference being connected to earth and other species. And, and this is just another reminder to be connected but also, you know, there's a strong belief in self-defense. So we, you know, this, the same, you know, the same bracelet, the, it's called a kara, will function, you know, as, as a mechanism of self-defense. Folks who are what I would say baptized into the faith also wear, you know, a gurban, which will be kind of like a, a ceremonial dagger. Sometimes it's shown, it's sometimes it's not. So those are kind of like other physical things that six wear or identify with. 
other stuff kind of is that, you know, our faith tradition started in 1469. And when you think about what else was happening in the world, that kind of puts into context of what kind of what compelled this faith tradition to, to come into existence. And a lot of it around is around kind of these like social ills and inequalities, whether that's the caste system, whether it's gender inequality, other forms forms of inequality based on, you know, socioeconomic things. So it, it was created kind of out in a response to a lot of those things, but also to, to bring people together. Community is very important. We have our gurdwaras, which is our places of worship. Those are our community centers. Whenever we expand or have grown into new areas or cities, the first thing folks kind of do is, is see when we have enough means to create a, a community center. So yeah, those those things are, are are pretty central. And again, I think gender equality, caste equality, but also being very aware of these kind of like social hierarchies that, you know, really belittle people. Those are things that the Sikh faith tradition really stands up against. Okay. Why is there such a high density of people immigrating from Punjab to the Central Valley? Yeah, you know, one I would say it's the climate. It, it mirrors a lot of the climate that's in Cal in uh, Punjab. So that's familiar. The, the work that was available here in California was it, in the early days was farm work. So a lot of Punjabis were doing farm work in the early days. But I think it's also word of mouth when folks kind of uh, share that they've gone somewhere, family members have gone, we we kind of tend to, to gather together and, and find kind of community again. So other thing is it's affordable. It's more affordable to live in the Central Valley. I think the earliest Sikhs came to California. The first Sikh place of worship or Gurdwara was here in Stockton, California. So those early roots kind of began with folks who were leaving to not only work in California, that's kind of where jobs were. Folks were working on the railroad, railroads kind of with the Chinese. So, so those things were kind of the early jobs brought us word of mouth travels fast. And I would say like climate, climate would also bring some folks here. Okay. What's, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right. What's the Jakara movement and what is Gurmat? Is that how you say it? Yeah. So Gurmat. Yeah. So Gurmat is the teachings of the Sikh tradition. So to the Jakarta movement is a Gurmat inspired organization that serves Sikh, Sikhs across California and, and really around the nation. And it was created kind of in, to, in this response to the first generation really feeling as though there was a need to start having conversations around a lot of the experiences that maybe they weren't able to translate to their parents who were the immigrants really, you know, working. And, and so these young kind of high school and college students started organizing conferences and having these really meaningful, really important, but really tough conversations around gender equality, the experiences of a first generation sick in America, living in a post 9-11 era. All of these things kind of were the early days. And then later it kind of turned into creating a cyclical model of keeping youth involved, not only to stay connected to their heritage and their culture and their sick history, but also to form community with one another where we felt some in some parts of California, sick youth were really just becoming in their silos. So, so this became kind of a network for them to connect. And through it came programming that highlights 
different, it highlights different experiences that, that we want to create in terms of having off-campus learning opportunities for young folks, you know, taking them to different camps, conferences, encouraging them to be the leaders on their campus and in their communities around different, you know, substance use, but also women empowerment, gender empowerment, caste abolition. So these are the very important conversations that young people are having at the organization. And, and that's really kind of the framework of it. The movement supports a lot of different programs, and some of them are active in different places. What's one program that you're excited about that they support? So one of the programs, like I mentioned, is we created a program in response to seeing a growing use of substances with high schoolers. And the program, CAD, is a peer-to-peer education program where high school students are informing, creating programming around things like fentanyl. They're having conversations around alcohol use disorder with, you know, within their own families, but also with their peers to really understand what those experiences are. So that is one program that I feel is so beneficial, not only to, you know, see the unfortunate growth of Fentanyl use, we had a really tragic incident this past year in Bakersfield, California, where a young high school student overdosed due to fentanyl as well. And, you know, in just this year, we've had, you know, at least eight to 10 young men who have overdosed within our community. So it's just a growing issue that is, you know, intersects with language access, resource accessibility, and, and these programs at a high school level really mitigate use as, as folks age. So that's one of the programs that I, I've seen a direct benefit of in, in terms of creating community with high schoolers and them really talking about things that, you know, as a high schooler, it's it's tough to fit in. It's tough to do anything. It's like the toughest years ever and leave everyone scarred and traumatized maybe, but it's also can be the best years and it can be the years where you form community and you try things out of your box. And so at a very local level here in Bakersfield, I've seen the high schoolers really form a community around being preventative and and being aware that this is, you know, this is not the lifestyle that they'd like to lead. So that's been, that's been very rewarding to see grow. That's wonderful. We're going to pivot now to talking about some Bakersfield stuff. Some of these are going to be kind of urban planning, economic development, those kinds of topics. We'll start with a simple one. Does Bakersfield need more freeways? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Well, it depends actually. So I think there's improvements that can be made. And the truth is Bakersfield is a transportation corridor. It is an artery that connects the 99 freeway, the five, it connects the 58 and also Taft Highway, which is the 178, the Taft Highway, the 118. And and all of these are major transportation and trucking routes. And and that's primarily what my community does. We are in trucking. Trucking is, I would argue that it's the third largest industry in Bakersfield and Kern County. And so with that, you see, you know, lots of movement of goods through, through Bakersfield because it's this transportation artery. So there is, I, I think there's Two ways we can look at it, there's seeing and recognizing that we're an important hub for transportation and how do we create ease in transporting those goods, but then also looking at at the local level, what is the quality of life for folks who, you know, within kind of what I would argue, like the suburbs of the different districts and there we have our city center, but I would argue that our, our city has grown 
far enough from downtown that each kind of district is its own suburb of a kind. So what is what does transportation and movement look like within within those suburbs? And that would be kind of having looking at both, but there is improvements to be made. You know, there's memes all the time that the 99, you know, keep working on yourself like the 99 does. So yeah, there's a that's, that's a cute t-shirt idea. I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it so hard to maintain pothole free streets? Great question. I would say it's Is it the know, materials of the streets or is it yeah. the maintenance crews or is it both? What is it? I would say it's the material. And I think that technology applies in every kind of different sector in a different way. But from from what I've learned from our public works department, also just my own obsession with street, uh, it, it it is the it is the material you're using. It's decisions made by folks beforehand who who kind of laid the streets and thought, you know, we they didn't expect the city to grow to this direction. And so the streets were kind of just there for whatever rural transportation was happening, but now the city and has grown to that direction and there is residential. So there's now a need to improve those streets. And, and back to the material, now that we've had unprecedented rain, it's really amplified the quality or the lack of quality in some of the roads. So I know folks have been really quick to respond to some of those really pressing needs, but there's a lot of technology actually around even the material that you're using, the shade of material you're using, and how it could really even decrease the temperatures that are being felt within you know certain neighborhoods. So that's a conversation that I've also been having, but you know all of that makes a difference. There's been a lot of movement at the state, national level towards electrification of transportation, including cars and making buildings more efficient. Given that one of the biggest industries in Bakersfield is petroleum production, how do leaders in Bakersfield think about the future in terms of a movement towards green technology? Yeah, the the conversation really is today around this transition. You know, the term transition is being used quite a lot at the at the county level. There's a lot of conversations being had at our local city and county, but also even within our local educational institutions where you know, we, we prepare for a, a job sector and, and workers who, who can respond to this transition towards new industries, especially, you know, more cleaner energy. So, so that is a real conversation that's happening right now. And, and folks are at the table kind of discussing what does the future of Kern County look like and how do we really embrace that transition? Hmm. A friend of mine, Anna Smith, wrote a column a few years ago suggesting that Bakersfield could become a regional remote work hub. Do you think that's viable? And what does the city need to do to put in place infrastructure to support something like that? I think so. You know, there is always a need for more jobs and a diversification of the types of jobs available. And as we see progress on the high-speed rail, I think it'll really change the dynamic of a place like Bakersfield. So folks will be able to live in Bakersfield and work elsewhere. So how do we respond to those coming changes in transportation and infrastructure in order to accommodate folks who will be, you know, commuting for work or working rurally and and working virtually? I think it's a diversification of the housing type that's available. I think it's also the local transportation available, and it's really accommodating to, you know, the changing workforce. It, it is a very different workforce that I think we can expect than the, the kind that we have traditionally known in a place like Bakersfield. 
Hmm. And connected to that, I know there's been some movements on affordable housing in the city. People in coastal places, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, tend to view the Valley as the place where you go to get affordable housing. Why is that not the case? Why Why is that not the case? In- yeah. So, because I, I, I just read about some of the initiatives to try and make available more affordable housing in Bakersfield. So clearly there's not enough, but the perception from the outside is that that's what Bakersfield, Fresno, a lot of these Valley centers are. It's places yeah. where you can afford to buy a house. I think in in comparison to, you know, coastal cities, larger cities, it it looks a lot more affordable, but I I think that's in response to a job that is, you know, if I live in Los Angeles and my job pays me in response to my residence in Los Angeles, that is going to look and and go a a much longer way in a place like Bakersfield where jobs and median household income is much different than a place like Los Angeles. But if you ask locally, especially folks in kind of a younger generation, the idea of owning a home seems a very as a far-fetched reality. That is just, you know, you are exceptional if you own a a home in your 30s, 40s, and in the folks in their 20s just don't see that as a possibility. And that's kind of the conversation conversation that I've heard, as well as for myself, you know, I I can be honest in sharing that it it looks like it's a, it's, it's not going to happen right now, especially on my city council salary. But I think the reason, and, and, and this is not only a problem and an issue that the city of Bakersfield faces, but it's statewide, it's national, it is expensive to build affordable housing, but it's also, there is not, there is not enough encouragement from like the state. And that is changing though. There are great bills that are being passed right now. Well, there's hopefully will be passed that are, you know, in the process right now that would make it easier to build affordable housing, whether you're a church or whether you are a an educational institution. And so those bills really help dictate to cities how to then meet those housing, affordable housing needs and, and kind of the, the, the quotas needed. Um, at a local level, the conversation really is seeking out affordable housing developers and those who are willing to build affordable housing. But again, I think it goes to the state. If there's incentives to build it, then then folks will build it. And the hope is that that improves. We are actually in the process of reviewing our housing element. And, um, you know, the city of Bakersfield has a great housing element that's coming together, not only reflecting on the kind of the the history of owning a home across the intersections of race, class, and, and all of those things, but also looking forward and saying, how do we how do we include affordable housing in, in what we expect and diverse housing, multi-use housing, and, and those being kind of the standard. So there is monumental change. And I would say the housing element that's being developed in our city is very impressive and, and hopes to meet the needs of affordable housing locally. Okay. Last question in this area, and this kind of ties into two things, you know, your life as city council person, but also urban planner is the reason that the Bakersfield Police Department needed private security's help to patrol because suburban sprawl has just expanded the city so much that it's just impossible for them to meet the demands? Or is there another reason? I would say yes. And we actually were just listening to kind of the the realities of calls being made and, and, and the needs as well as response times. And it is because there is 
just the distance makes all of the difference in, in terms of how quickly someone is able to respond. And South Bakersfield and North Bakersfield have the longest response times. And it's exactly that. It's the distance that folks have to travel in order to respond to a call. Mm. Okay. So we're going to pivot to my favorite section, which is called overrated versus underrated. I'm going to throw a bunch of things at you. You tell me whether you think they're over or underrated and why. Okay. Uh, so we'll we'll start with an iconic one, the yellow Bakersfield sign, over underrated. Underrated. Really? How, how do you say, how, is there an option for saying well, very, well, properly very rated. well appreciated? Yeah, <laughs> properly rated would be like the, you know, so like you agree with the general perception of, of, yes, of people. Yeah, okay, it, is, so. it is something that's very monumental. I myself feel a certain way when I pass by it. I think we can... We can think about the placement, maybe. I would love for it to be over the freeway, maybe. And I don't know who's Caltrans. Maybe I could suggest that to them. But I think folks would be very mad about moving it from the Book Omens Palace. So <laughs> there's my it, response. It is in a very strange place. It's not that like, it's not like an entrance to the city. It's just kind of on this side road almost yeah. at this point. It's I've not been- central. Right. And it's been moved before. So it used to oh. be on Union Avenue, which Union used to be the the main route kind of up, up into, it used to be the 99, I guess. And that's where it was. And so it was moved once. Mm, I see. All right. Next one. The book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, something I always ask urban planners over underrated. Underrated. Jane Jacobs was ahead of her time. And I think that book does not age. It is kind of timeless. I refer to it often whenever I need notes or inspiration. And and sometimes you, as an urban planning student, you really get to imagine the world. You get to, you have no restraints. You can, and you can be as imaginative and innovative as possible. But then when you get into an urban planning or city planning job, there are restrictions around, you know, no matter the the physical design, the, the built environment of your city, the conditions of how, how it you know, how complicated it is to make kind of a bit, a a small, but significant change. So that book kind of transports you in a way, kind of gives you inspiration, gets you, gives you things to lean on. And it also, I think it also affirms and validates a lot of the experiences that are described within the book of, you know, having a stoop and, and sitting on it and, and being able to talk with your neighbors as they pass by, or, you know, the importance of green spaces, public spaces, and, and different points of interaction that can be created. Um, and, and those are exactly the experiences within a city that become memorable to people and, and they hold on to. Let's imagine that we can grab Jane Jacobs, resurrect her and drop her on Chester Avenue. What would she say? <laughs> She would say, when is this Chester Avenue improvement project coming? <laughs> I've heard great things about it. <laughs> I would I would hope I could drop her in Ward 7 because a lot of it is not built yet. And I would love to have her thoughts and input on what we should do. That's wonderful. All right. Next one. Butter chicken. Over underrated. Oh, my gosh. I hope no Punjabi people watch this, but it's overrated. (laughs) Okay. Why is it? Well, I mean, I I, I think there's a lot of Punjabi people that would agree with you. Why is it overrated? Well, I think when folks go to a Punjabi wedding, the assumption might be that we eat that food every day. But no, that is food (laughs) that we also only eat at a wedding. Like maybe rice, but even rice is not something we're eating every day. 
So, you know, butter chicken is, it's a delicacy. It's something special. Everyone has their own way to make it. Um, but it is something that you can count on. I guess it's like the good old trusty dish that you know will be at the wedding that you can go to. But I gravitate towards different dishes. Mm. And I've heard that it's kind of what, it's kind of a dish that you use if you've got like leftover chicken or leftover things in the kitchen and you're like, okay, I just need to make something with this. Is that true? It could be. I think it's also just like if there's a birthday or we're celebrating something special, then butter chicken gets made at home. And, and you know, it's it's something important if butter chicken is is being made. So I haven't heard it in the context of leftovers. I have heard in the context of, you know, that that's what I know of it is it's a special occasion dish. Okay. Next one, urban farming. Is it just a hipster pastiche kind of thing or is it something that's actually useful? Very useful. There's a great example of urban planning, urban farming in Brooklyn. It's called the Brooklyn Grange. And I think urban farming is done well when there's programming also incorporated into a, a space. But also it's just so nice in the way that it gives a break from, you know, the 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 buildings and the same kind of shapes and experiences and sensory kind of experience that you receive in a city. And then suddenly you're on a rooftop and you're in the Brooklyn Grange. They have this beautiful space where folks host special events and dinners, but folks also, you know, are learning. There's programming built into how to learn these different farming techniques and, and growing your own food, having fresh produce. But yeah, I would I would say it's very much underappreciated. I dream of turning every Walmart into an urban farm and turning all of our box, big box retail, having urban farms on top. But that's just a dream of mine. Sounds wonderful. I would love that idea just to kind of, you know, there'd be a little elevator in each department store. You can go up, upstairs and pick some heirloom tomatoes or something. Sounds wonderful. On the gardens front, Ulbrick Botanical Gardens, over or underrated? Oh, underrated. Beautiful garden. It was actually... And it's such an experience because during the winter, it'll be closed. So in the springtime, when it opens up, you you get to experience it. Again, it has programming built into it. Such a sensory experience, um, but absolutely gorgeous. Okay. And if people haven't visited Madison, Wisconsin, what should they do there? Maybe eat cheese <laughs> or what? They should eat cheese. Madison, Wisconsin has all kinds of great cheese and they win international cheese awards every single year. And, and sometimes the cheese awards are held in Madison. If you're in Madison, make sure you hop on a bike and go on any of the bike paths. They, there is such a beautiful kind of cycling system, bicycling system within Madison. Madison, I think has great food, a lot of restaurants who value and commit to sourcing their, their food locally. And it, it punches way above its weight in in terms of local foods and restaurants so there's just there's great great food my favorite coffee shop is wonder state coffee and they have this wonderful cardamom drink cookie that they make and you know the fact that i'm thinking about it even now shows obviously that it's very memorable <laughs> but madison has great outdoor spaces no matter what season you go in beautiful lakes and 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 definitely spend some time on the university campus i think the architecture is worthwhile there and go to a co-op. I think the co-ops are really cool in, in Madison. So those are kind of the, the things I would suggest, but uh, yeah. Wonderful. Okay. Another food item, sag paneer. 
I really enjoy sag paneer. Yeah, this is sag is a winter dish. So, you know, in Punjabi families, you're eating this all winter. And some of us like spoiled first generation folks will kind of co- start complaining about it when it's <laughs> like the fifth round of sag. So sag paneer kind of becomes this delicacy then. So it's, you know, your parents recognize you're getting bored of the sag and then they just throw some paneer in it. So I would say it's underrated. Okay. Parklets over underrated. Underrated, underappreciated. And, you know, we've got to have more of them. Imagine just, you know, we, maybe the city doesn't have the capacity or resources to build an entire park, but what if you just have one full-size basketball court on the corner, you have just one, you know, soccer field, one, whatever it might be, cricket field and it's just mm. on the corner and and that's exactly you know what exactly what that parklet is for i think it's the perfect substitute for the park that's a little bit bigger and a little bit further because it's just harder to i mean the bigger the project is the harder it is to implement you know and so if you do smaller projects you can stay under budget you can do them quickly you can do all sorts of fun things like get them done right yes getting um, them done that's the key okay just a couple more the kern river bike trail under overrated underrated underappreciated i so i lived away from bakersfield for about the last three years and before that i was a community organizer so i didn't really you know was fighting the good fight so i didn't really have time to look up but i went on the kern bike path for the first time this year and the kern river is flowing there's a lot of water it's beautiful and there's the design of it is actually very interesting as well we're going under a lot of you know roads and streets so it's like an underpass almost that's created and just like has this tunnel effect so it it's very, very cool and it's very nice when you you kind of ending your you're, you're getting towards the end of the current, I guess, the bike path and you end up at a park and there's places to eat and, and it's kind of like that full experience. Okay. Two more. Uh, the CSUB campus. Am I saying underrated or overrated? What is, is it? Still I, I mean, campus? it's kind of a weird campus. I'm just bringing it up because <laughs> I grew up near it and it was always, I mean, it feels like a college, but it also kind of feels like this strange kind of... <laughs> like mixture of things. Uh, How is it these days? Yeah, we love CSUB. I think it's growing. I was speaking in an ethnic studies class last week and they have this, their new housing for students is so beautiful. There were like classrooms inside. Uh, So I think the infrastructure is growing and and changing, but I think it's your classic kind of like commuter campus setup. But we, we, we love our Cal State Bakersfield. I very much enjoy their library. There's like the Walter Stern library room. There's like room right in front because there's these beautiful large windows. And I, I think in, inside it's like the the wooded walls are, are very beautiful. So that's kind of a, a transporting experience there. Yeah, I love that library too. And once we can get rid of some more smog in the valley, it'll be that much more beautiful to look out those windows. All right. I agree. Last one on this subject. If you, for the rest of your life, could only have one dip with your samosas, would be tamarind or cilantro chutney? It's the tamarind for me. Tamarind is such a unique flavor, but it is like tamarind candy or tamarind chutney or whatever it is. I gravitate towards tamarind for sure. Mm. 
Wonderful. All right. So let's talk a little bit about city council stuff for a minute before we close with books. Why is the Bakersfield city council map look so strange? (laughs) You know, it gets redistricted every 10 years right after the census. So we just went through the redistricting process and it looks strange because some of, you know, just the area is still in the county, but also there's higher concentrations of population in certain places. So populations kind of have to be even throughout the different wards. And, you know, we also have to follow different rules where there's a certain population of Latinos in in, in a number of districts. So that's in, in making sure that we align with the Voting Rights Act and creating a majority Latino district. So there's different criteria. So I think those are the reasons why the map looks weird. In some parts of the city, there's still county pockets. I only have a few county pockets, but in like East Bakersfield and Southeast Bakersfield, some folks, I've heard that their home is like divided in half between being in the city and being in the county. So there's work to be done on kind of fixing those and bringing them into the city. So if someone's half of their house is in the county, half in the city, and they call 911, who comes? That's a great question. Yeah, that's an uh, interesting one. Maybe, I would hope both. Yeah, no, that <laughs> seems like that would be the, yeah. or they flip a coin or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just so weird. I was looking at it today and I saw like, just right in the center of the city, there was like this little hole of county right in the middle of the city. I'm like, how does how does that how does that happen? I mean, it it seems like at least in most places, city is kind of like within the city boundaries. There's like kind of like an inner circle. And then once you get in that outer circle, you get to the county. But it seems like maybe there needs to be kind of like a general expansion of the city to include those pockets that are missing? Is there, is there some people that think that would be a benefit to the city? I think folks do. And, and, and folks who are kind of in those County pockets in some places they might resist, but in some places folks assume they're already in the city. So they're surprised when they're not receiving city services or aren't able to kind of engage with city folks. So I think that that is an issue. Okay. When city council people are not paid a traditional salary, who does that job attract and how does it limit your ability to work on your goals and priorities? Great question. You know, the the setup of the city of Bakersfield, the, the city council has been that it is a stipended, it is understood as being a stipended volunteer public service role. That might have applied to a much smaller Bakersfield Perhaps I can't speak for my forefathers who came before me or the forefathers of Bakersfield, but today Bakersfield is the ninth largest city and growing very quickly. It is, you know, full of just activity, industry, and and real residential needs that that deserve to have a, a completely separate staff working on these constituent issues and, and, and ways of creating policy to grow the city forward. Also, I would say that it creates another burden on city staff and limits them from the roles that they are in if they're also working on seven different city council members' needs and and fulfilling constituent needs. So I think it's like a multi-pronged issue, but then it only attracts folks who are either independently wealthy or are retired and able to fulfill this public service. So it limits folks of 
you know, different occupations, different, you know, walks of life, different diversity that represents the city, and it becomes extremely limiting. So those of us who are not independently wealthy or not retired yet are working practically two full-time jobs. And and that is a challenge. And it becomes a challenge when you aren't able to, you know, meet the residents' needs or or give them the attention that they deserve as your as their elected official because you are still working a nine to five. And yeah, that's a challenge. Yeah. Well, I vote for salaries for every especially people that are running the ninth biggest city in the state. That seems like it should be self-obvious. So yeah, that's obnoxious. And we need to we need to get all the people on the city council paid so they can treat it like what it is, which is their full-time job or should be their full-time job. Let's close with book recommendations. Uh, what are two or three books you'd recommend to listeners? Two or three books I would recommend. I I like reading and, and learning kind of the histories of where I've grown up, whether it's the Central Valley, right? Kind of in my more recent years, I've just read a lot of more urban planning books, The Death and Life of American Cities by Jane Jacobs. The Color of Law is a book that I just gifted yesterday. So I only gift books now. It's just... <laughs> I guess that's, that's where wonderful. I come to in life. So The Color of Law is a great book that really understand, it kind of lays out redlining and, and the histories of kind of the setup of, you know, how folks come to interact with, you know, different things around where they settle, why they settle and and, and the decisions, the policy decisions that really affected that in terms of urban planning, city plannings and the intersections of race, class and society. Another person, I guess I would say is worth researching is Frank Lloyd Wright. And there are some great books that show his work. I'm, I'm an amateur architect as well. So just an, just an enthusiast, but Frank Lloyd Wright was a Wisconsin architect who built some of the most amazing homes, different architecture around America. And we actually have a real Frank Lloyd Wright home right here in Bakersfield. Really? Where is it? It's in East Bakersfield, actually. Huh. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'll have to connect you with the person that kind of gives tours. They they host different events there. Um, But the family who owned it, you know, they kind of left it for folks to enjoy. So it, it is really, really impressive. And I would say just checking out some of his books and some of his work would be my suggestion as well. And I'm trying to look around for books that are laying around. <laughs> yeah, I think those would be my book recommendations. Wonderful. And what's next for you? What projects are you working on that you're excited about? Right now, I am in my, I'm now transitioning into my fifth month of being on the Bakersfield City Council. So in these last five months, I've really kind of delved into how do we think about infrastructure and city design moving forward in a place like Ward 7. I, I think it's kind of like a village of the of the city. It's far enough to be its own suburb, and it really does function like its own suburb. So I'm thinking a lot about how to create different types of infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, but also housing. I want to see housing diversify within Ward 7. I want folks to have the opportunity to be an apartment if that's what they want, a townhome or, you know, a a duplex, whatever it might look like. But I want to encourage that diverse housing to be developed here. 
I'm also thinking a lot about bike lanes and protected bike lanes. And I have two clusters of an entirely kind of complete school system, an elementary school, a junior high school and a high school. And I would want to create more like safer infrastructure with protected bike lanes and, and more walkability. So kids feel safe going and coming from school. And, And we're working on a demonstration project for that. So I'm really looking forward to that as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.